You're listening to Drifter Sympathy on SBI Audio. This season is made possible through the generous support of Patreon subscribers. To become a patron, visit Drifter Sympathy on Facebook and hear more music at holysons.bandcamp.com. Sitting on the calendar was just an arbitrary date. I'd made this abstract decision to leave New York after five years and return to my childhood home. Like most things in my life, it seemed like a last second decision, but like some kind of pearl glistening down in the bottom of the ocean. A midlife crisis was inexplicably calling me. I convinced myself that if I returned to my childhood home, it would equalize my mind, that I would be back at the beginning where I'd had nothing, and the idea of returning home after having gone out on this odyssey was just romantic enough that I could ignore the encroaching strangeness of abandoning this 23-year journey that I'd been on since I'd lived in my hometown. everything that I owned in my car and I started driving it was very strange I had written the plan down on paper but I'd not emotionally considered anything I was going to go through and by the time I got to the house where I'd be living I just had a lot of work to do and that would probably help me not look backwards The first chore I had to do was clear out this old house that my mom had left. A small little place, but it was full of all my childhood shit. So it was like third grade homework. Every baseball card I'd ever collected, my kindergarten toys, and just pictures and pictures of of growing up. I was just thinking about the task at hand and probably just trying to focus But as I was going through the pictures, you become confronted with this person that was formerly you. And you look at the child in the pictures and they are unknowing of pretty much everything and yet programmed fully to become you as you are now. And as I'm looking at this kid in the pictures, I just think... The kid hasn't yet lived, and so most of its ideas are just theories of how the world would work outside. And it was hard to reconcile. There's an old Aldous Huxley quote. An interviewer is walking through his house with him, and he looks over on the mantle, and he sees a picture of him as a young man. And he says, Do you remember that person? And Aldous Huxley said... There's no relation between me and the person in that picture, except for the fact that we're the same person. Meaning, 
It's just a separate entity. And it's an amazing thing to look at yourself objectively as a character and maybe disregard the thing or, or consider it or evaluate it. It's also very strange. I'm staring at this person and I'm thinking, when did you figure out anything? When did you become a semi-legitimate person that walks down the street? How do you know anything that you can tell anyone else? Anything about the nature of life? That kid had a lot of ideas. They seemed very restless. But at what point does one gain legitimacy to these theories? Let's say you begin life as a child with only theories. And then let's say by the second half of life, you've tested these things. You know what works and what doesn't work. And the question that came to my mind was, what deepens you? What legitimizes your theories? What brings you to a place where you have your hands on some truth and then you are able to either express it or feel confident that you actually have your feet on the ground and you know what you see? And after staring at these pictures for days as I'm trying to file things away, it occurred to me that three different things were the landmark points that made this person, this little kid, the person that I know now that's capable of ascertaining the world. first one is frustration. If you see an innocent face, the face of a child, they are pre-disturbed, they are pre-bothered, and if you're tracing along their psyche's development, there has to come a point where they declare that they are unhappy with the state of things. And that moment is the beginning of an artist. That's, that's when someone says, I'm not going to live like this. I'm not going to live in total complacency. I'm not going to go to work and get tired and then come home and watch TV just to go back to fucking work again to buy the car that takes me to work. That's an endless cycle of samsara. At some point, someone has to just burn the house down and say, no, there has to be something more than this. The second thing that I think warped that child was depression. Giving their brain depth, giving their words weight, making that person have legitimate feelings and empathy. They stopped just talking and they started meaning things. And that connected their words to actual emotions that another person can understand. And I have to thank depression for making me 
who I am because it slowed everything down. It stopped everything. I couldn't function. And I had to rebuild and rethink every little thing about how I saw the world and how I would use the world. So the depression and the frustration made a cocktail that mixed together and turned me into a utilitarian. At some point, I not only had to figure out how to function, but I had to figure out why I wanted to and what it was I wanted to do with my energy and my time. I was tired of being aimless. I was tired of being totally bereft of meaning. If I had to get up off the couch eventually and just make it myself, that's what I was gonna have to do. It just took a long time to realize it was all on me. characteristic or turning point in what happened to that little kid is kind of a curveball subject. I've been talking to songwriters and musicians constantly last few years and one thing I've noticed is that a lot of artists are going through constant confusion about what they want to say. I'm sitting there listening and I'm thinking why did I know what I wanted to do with my whole life? And the answer is odd. It's, it's because I wanted to imitate somebody so deeply. When I saw these certain kids or people who were just at their peak and just blew by me as a kid, they could have been on a skateboard over my head off a jump ramp, or they could have been Joni Mitchell singing on TV. But when I saw that kind of confidence with expertise you know, probably the result of a lot of practicing, I was like, I want to be like that. I want to be able to master something. It occurred to me that a huge part of self-realization is ironically the lust to be like someone else. Initially, you have a hero or many heroes and you cut yourself in that mold. And then if you're lucky, that hero gives you a mode of being, and that mode can be picked up and made into your own language. If you're lucky, they give you that. It shocked me that going back and tracing it to the source, there was this obsession to be like someone else. favorite scenes in Narcissus and Goldman, the book by Herman Hesse, is this young boy is like lost, basically out in the woods, and he's metaphorically also just completely lost in life, and he comes upon this statue that he sees that evokes so much emotion, and the detail to its execution just absolutely explodes his understandings of what human beings can do and say. And when he sees this statue, 
He immediately goes inside, says, who made this? I want to be your apprentice and just lives there for a few years trying to learn how to express himself that well. Ironically, he doesn't end up mastering it and he gives up on himself and he leaves and tries the next thing and the next thing. But that moment, that enlightenment moment where the stick got hit over his head and he saw someone else express themselves so exquisitely and render an emotion so real for him, that is a galvanizing lightning bolt. That's a major turning point that cannot be underestimated. This symbolizes the beginning of our emotional growth. It's looking up at your father, your mother, and looking at their mold and not even understanding your shape yet. But this is just the very beginning as we start to imitate. here goes to bed around like 11 and it's late it's like 4 a.m. I've got nothing to do so at some point I'm gonna have to revisit these old landmarks I don't have to stare at them I don't have to meditate on them I just have to look at them once the town is so small that about two blocks away is Ron's old house 
and I want to go see if the shack where I was kidnapped is still there. So I'm just kind of wandering down the street through people's backyards almost like a vagrant. I get to where the shack was and there's a different shack or at least a newer, nicer shack. And I take a picture of it from the street in the middle of the road with all the street lights gleaming down onto it. And everything about the domesticity and the peacefulness of a small town is a bit odd because any violence or inherent dissonance is buried down under and you have to have the eyes to see it. If you don't see it, you'll just go right by it. And like an idiot, I get home and I'm looking at the photo without ever realizing that the stairwell right next to it is the stairs that I carried my friend up to put him to bed after he'd fallen off the roof and broken every bone. And the point is that all these landmarks are just toppling over each other. There's so much history crammed into a small space that it's hard for me to sort which ones made me me and which ones almost destroyed me. About 1,500 feet from where I'm living now is the first shitty little apartment that my mom moved us to in 1981. One day I must have been about seven years old and my mom had put a little black and white TV in my bedroom. Maybe it was summertime and I remember watching some sort of outdoor performance on the Today Show or something. It was Tears for Fears in all white turtlenecks playing what I think was the working hour on live TV. sang every day in class and my teachers told my mom you got to get this kid to stop doing this it's disrupting everything and I'd ground my teeth down playing drums inside my mouth so I could hear them in my head so I could sing over something but this was the first time I'd ever seen someone on stage who was serious and the world was taking them seriously so I can trace everything in my life back to this summer afternoon where I saw them on stage and I thought, I can do that. The world would accept me. 
Never was there one thought in my mind that it might be hard to get on that stage or there might be a lifetime of work that needs to be done to get up there or this is a fucking pipe dream reserved for two people every generation. Looking up to someone else has always been a core transformative experience for me. And back in the ghost town days of the 80s, there were really only two kids from our town that had boosted themselves out of the neighborhoods and into the eyes of the national music scene. I lived about 700 feet from my elementary school on one side, and on the other side, about 700 feet away, was a guy named Dexter Romweber. Nowadays, people think of Dexter Romweber as the kind of progenitor of this duo garage band music that became the White Stripes. But as a kid that lived down the street, he embodied more of a Boo Radley character. Living in a shack that was falling down, he called the mausoleum, wearing bones and praying to Gene Vincent at night, smoking cigarettes and drinking himself into a daze. Due to a notorious appearance in the Athens Inside Out documentary from the mid-80s, Dexter's reputation had grown to a point where MTV decided they needed to come down and understand what was going on in Carborough, North Carolina. The Romwebs are pretty well known around here. And there's little brother Dexter who moved his bedroom into a building behind the house. He calls it the mausoleum. Dexter is no poser. He loves American rock and roll and lives it 24 hours a day. He's the kind of kid that would take a long time to get to know. Welcome to the Mars. This is where I spend my time. This is where I spend my time growing up. And drinking beer. <laughs> I'll give you a brief tour of the place. It's not really that, you know. Rounding the Gothic cornice, here is my bed. I spend many a lonesome night in this bed. We got Elvis at 19 with a stack of That's All Right Mama records that he recorded in 1954. And before him, Buddy Holly. And God, Buddy Holly's just my tremendous idol. I don't know. And below him, Gene Vincent. And there's never going to be a wildest rocker ever again. And then little Richard. And he ain't rocking no more, just like the rest of them aren't rocking no more. It's kind of our uh, shrine to the rockers. And uh, moving around. This is my first silver tone guitar that I brought to school with me and crooned to a young lady. And then the coffin table right here. We got this the night we moved into the mausoleum, but we went out in the woods and got it by the railroad tracks. I'm coming to the Mars and I'm always around because this is a lonesome town. But then again, all towns are lonesome. The residual effect of this character is so hard to quantify, but the idea that someone would live among broken things and play broken things and cherish dead things was somehow a divining rod. To carry yourself with such conviction, unaware of what the rest of the world is concerned with, to a level where people were speculating on your mental health, it put something on the map for a young kid. 
who knew they wanted to give themselves to some form of freedom, not understanding what that even was yet. The other kid that appeared in town that provided a kind of blueprint for how you could use your mind to create the world of an artist was working behind the counter at the record store and he had just started up his own lo-fi four-track project called Bricks. Most bands around town playing music were completely content using it like a house party device. But this kid, Mac, had been studying the underground climate on a national level and wanted to contribute to something larger. So he ended up starting Merge Records, one of the most healthy underground labels to this day, just to initially put out his own band, Superchunk. This was a massive watermark for what you could do merely with your brain in this small town. The fact that these two individuals achieved national success must have registered somewhere inside my brain, but I didn't consciously understand that that was of value. It was more of the spiritual character of the fact that they were doing it and living what we saw as kids as the most valuable reality, which is one that you create for yourself. Reaching outside of our small world to other like-minded bands, one of Superchunk's early 7 Inches was all covers of Lou Barlow songs, someone who had just been kicked out of Dinosaur Jr. and hadn't yet been celebrated as a songwriter in his own right. I was amazed that Mac had pioneered this relationship with other people in different cities and outside of our town. So one day I walked up to him and I, I kind of bit my lip and just said, what am I gonna do, man? I would have been like 15, he would have been like 21, and I just needed some guidance. I have tapes and tapes of songs. They have to go somewhere, they have to be deposited somewhere. So I walk up and say, what should I do? But before he can even answer, I hear the equation of what would solve my dilemma in my head. And I think to myself, please God, don't just tell me to go play live and do years of hard work to build up an audience until someone will pay attention to me. And he says, well, first thing you gotta do is go play live and eventually your reputation will slowly build and people will come out of the cracks, eventually acknowledge your legitimacy and then on that day, a record label will come to you and say, we'd like to help you make a record for all the fans you already have. As he's talking, I'm already phased out. I'm like, oh shit, I'm not up for this. I'm not gonna do it. I don't know why, but I don't feel at home in this world. 
and that's it. I reached out into the world, wanted to connect with it, and it burned my hand. And I said to myself, this is too hard. I'm not up for it. I'm going to do this in the most impractical, ridiculous way possible, which is to never tell anyone I play music for the next 10 years and record by myself. It's amazing that an avalanche of pain and confusion set in motion by yourself comes back to something that was totally seemingly insignificant. But instead of regretting it or meditating on it endlessly, I never do that. I just think I wasn't ready. I didn't want to do it. home was calming and not as strange as you might think. I'd heard Ron worked at a bank over by the post office and every day I was sending some things off and kind of looking over at it thinking there's no way I'm gonna get in touch with them. That just sounds like too much work and I already have too many things in front of me. And as time went on, I kept thinking about how when you're young and you ask someone like Ron a question, you were really lucky if they just told you the truth or didn't mince words. And I started to think, how great would it be to hear Ron talk now? He's just one of those people that you know will never really change, will always be ruthlessly direct. So a couple hours after I had thought of this, I just friend request him. He gets right back. I asked him what he's doing. He says he'll be at my house tomorrow. Well, it's been 23 years, but you know, some people are just your friend. 
And, you know, I pulled up into the driveway and he's just sitting there on the steps, just like it was always this way. The only way to start this conversation I could think of was that we should talk to Ron about his own gurus. And I was immediately surprised at how direct he was about his early years being permeated by a certain loneliness. Can you hear me? I feel fine. Woo! Woo! If you took me back in time, yeah, and I wanted to understand who were the, the guru people for you when you were, I guess it would have been the 70s. Yeah. Just someone spring to mind. Nobody trained me. It was all trial and error. Did you identify as an outsider? Oh, yeah, I was totally an outsider. Why? Well, I mean, I had a very traumatic um, early childhood. I just had this idea that something was wrong with me. Hmm. This is what age? Well, this is as early as like nine or ten. And then sexual ideas I had weren't the run of the mill either so I'm like I am not like everybody else and so I began to learn to be quiet and hide I mean I spent a lot of time in high school in my bedroom with my headphones on listening to albums and reading the liner notes it was like very isolated did you identify with some imagined community out there that was also listening oh, to no, Rush and stuff? No, no, no. At one point, I thought I am some kind of alien Martian that has been put here to be studied. I had moments where I thought I'm the only person like me in the world. I mean, in 1982... You thought people that were gay wanted to be women. I was like, Dad, no thoughts about women at all. I like boxing. I like fighting. I'm dirty. You know, it's like, there's nobody like me on the world. I mean, seriously, I was a junior or a senior in college, and I had a friend that went to college in Boston. We had been best friends in third and fourth and fifth grade, and then he moved to D.C. He got more worldly, and for some reason, we kept in communication, and we'd see each other maybe once every two years, but we'd send each other paper letters sometime. And he wrote me a letter, and he said, come to Boston and see the world. And I went to Boston when I was a college senior and saw the world, lost my virginity. I really felt like a, an alien. When's the first time you met a person that confirmed that you weren't totally, entirely alone? Do you remember? Well, there was a woman, and she was probably 34, and working at the pet store, 
making the same wage that a high school kid is making. I suspected she had had drug addiction and she was getting her life back together and she worked at the pet store 40 hours a week and at a restaurant as a cocktail waitress 20 hours a week. But she convinced me that everyone was a freak and that the world is full of freaks. And back then the drinking age was 18. I was trying to be moral, upright, you know, please my parents, please God, I don't know. But so I was afraid of that kind of stuff. But she would take me after pet store ended at nine, she would take me to a bar and it was kind of like the biker bar. And she would take me in there and the whole time she's talking to me, I want you to see this person. So she kind of was like a tour guide to right here in your own town, there's people. I didn't see anybody like me per se, but I, I, I saw that there were they're different people. But you know, I went to Boston and my eyes were open some. I was jealous of my friend and his But you didn't think about leaving. No, I was too scared and you know, I didn't know you could go out in the world and That's the beginning of many great stories. Yeah. The Buddha. Jimmy Fallon. He went out? I'm just kidding. Oh. He went out. There was some kind of barrier between me and other people. I mean, when I was in high school, I hung out with a kid who lived on the street that the Rom Webbers lived. You've heard of Dexter Rom Weber. Yeah, I've talked about him. Pine Street? Pine Street. Yeah. yeah. So my best friend in high school lived on Pine Street, and we would go to the Rom Webbers. There were kids there smoking pot probably do an acid. That's got to be 79. 79, 78, 79, you know. That had to be the coolest house. It had to be the coolest house in Carborough. But my friend and I would walk back to his house and he'd say, Joe was smoking pot. I don't think Monica's a virgin. It was like he would be so judgmental. And so it was like, it was almost like going to the fun house or the state fair. It was just this brief moment. And I think, what if I had just gone by myself and loosened up a little and maybe taken a puff? But I was so afraid. This is probably not true, but I believe that he and I are the only two professional underground musicians that ever came out of Carver Elementary. It's possible. Carver Elementary, birth of the stars. Well, he's been on Letterman. North Carolina's musicianship is pretty incredible. You've got John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk, James Taylor. I don't quite count him. (laughs) Elizabeth Cotton. George Clinton. Fuck, what town? Kannapolis, North Carolina. That's insane. Did you know Nina Simone? Yeah. And Charlie Daniels. I was thinking Charlie Daniels would be Georgia. He's North Carolina. He's North Carolina born, Wilmington. You've read your books. I've read my books. Who's next after that long list? I feel like Dexter Rumweber is almost next. Well, I mean, there are a lot of the almost made it's, you know, the Connells. I guess I rate him higher. He's definitely more unique. And the Connells didn't go on Letterman. No, they didn't go on Letterman. 
just from forensically knowing what you've said now, the major turning point that, that was maybe positive in your life would have had to have been correlating LSD with the Prague music and putting it into kind of like a religion. Or something. Oh, yeah, that's exactly. I can't believe you. Um, well, you've already exposed you didn't have a friend group that yeah. taught you anything. So you had yeah. to have built your own thing. Yeah, well, I did. I have a cliche that um, I use in sort of a justification for being an outsider, but I used to say a group of friends is neither. It's like it's not a group and they're not friends. But the outsider thing, I never identified myself as an outsider, but I think that's a better... It's funny. It's so much nicer term than freak. One of the most hurtful things I remember experiencing is when people would call me a freak with that certain tinge in their voice, like, you're worthless. I know it. And the older I get, the more, you know, I know that it wasn't just in our imagination. I mean, the freaks get lynched, you know, the weak get lynched. Why do you think you didn't go back to Boston? Well, I have been back twice, but just for So a you've visit. had sex three times? No. Oh, no. I have I actually did have sex the second time I went to Boston, but after I went to Boston, I realized I could have sex in Raleigh. I kick myself, though, too, because I should have done something. There were things that went on at school, but I already felt like I'd been rejected. So I wasn't going to participate. I did not go to graduation. I did not go to my high school graduation. I never bought a yearbook. You know, I was like, as soon as I can, I'm gone. I'm done with this. You went straight over to the pet store. <laughs> I was already at the pet store. I did start falling the dead. That's a major turning point. That was a major turning point. Because you're traveling. You're meeting yeah. freaks. You're meeting freaks. It's a positive environment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that came from more from music and acid. The second time I saw the dead, it was Carter Finley Stadium, which where we saw Pink Floyd. I mean, I saw the Rolling Stones there, but... Steel I, Wheels? Steel Wheels. I was there. The second time I saw the dead, I tripped. Nobody trained you into LSD. If you didn't have like a clear-cut guru, if you're forced to reference the people at the pet store. Right. I mean, this might seem simplistic, but do you think you were driven to guru younger people because you had a lack of that kind of guidance yourself? That is part of it. I mean, the funny thing is I have thought about this. 
And I thought as I grew older that everybody my age knew too much about me and they had judged me. Whereas I knew more than the younger people and they didn't know anything about me. And so it, then we could have experiences together. Did you go to Chapel High? I went to Chapel High. Class of 1980. Wow. Yeah. Right. I forgot because I thought of you as yeah. a substitute teacher. Oh, that's right. I forgot you knew me as a substitute yeah. teacher. A lot of people now would say like class of 1980 that's gotta be a pretty high tide of toxic masculinity and like oh yeah oh yeah conformism yeah. Just oh, conformism. i'm just trying to picture your world and it, it's ironic that for me to be at the same high school and feeling the same way i would probably skip school to come over to your house to find something in someone else that you didn't get to have yeah. you didn't get to have somebody that was older and gave them like a safe place to be their strange self right know, or whatever yeah that would make sense that you would be driven to create that for yourself and other people yeah. almost yeah. making up for lost time right uh, that's pretty accurate when i read about age and suicide and suicide action and i think you know 15 16 17 18 i thought about it sometimes yeah. What's the point of living? What if I climbed on the top of Granville Towers and jumped off the roof? I thought, oh, but what if I lived? <laughs> you know, but I was like... You're scared to do that, too. Scared to do that. Everybody has those alien feelings. I mean, the man that fell to Earth... Which I've still never seen. You've never seen and it? And I love David Bowie. The first half is absolutely amazing. Nothing you have seen or heard about David Bowie will prepare you for the impact of his first dramatic performance in The Man Who Fell to Earth. One of the few true originals of our time. You're really a freak. You're an alien! The end is a little bit fruity. It was just a druggy time of filmmaking yeah, too. Yeah. That's like it gets nonsensical. But I think The Man That Fell to Earth is a film that Bowie wanted to convey that entire sense of alienation, you know, the, the theme of his career. They asked him once uh, if he really, you know, thought he'd meet the aliens one day, and he was like, I have no interest in that. For me, that it only ever represented spiritual search. Um, I tend to have just used the idea of the alien or the otherness of beings to pinpoint a sense of isolation or alienation, which is slightly, you know, sort of more, more of a psychological thing. And, uh, and they became ciphers for that. But the idea, you know, is the life on Mars, I could care less. When Bowie died, I think one reason why people were so sad is because he actually represented a friend, right. a, a brother, that also felt alone. Yeah. You wish and wish and wish again. You've tried so hard to fly. You'll never leave your body now. You've got to wait to die.
I lived in New York for five years. So when you're in New York, there's this beautiful thing that happens. You accept and you acknowledge that you will never play a role in the history of this city. Right. That it will outlast you. Yeah. And you are immediately anonymous, which is an amazing thing. Right. The total opposite of a small town like this. Right. So you are liberated there by this sense that there's so much going on and change is the rule. New businesses are opening up every other day. Nobody sheds a freaking tear because there's no time. All right. For some reason, coming back here, I thought that things would be kind of different in some way because everybody's always talking about how different it is now. And the thing that shocks me is that it almost looks identical down to the fact that motherfucking Dane is riding the same fucking bike at the same minute down the same road as when I left 23 exactly. years ago. Exactly, and he is. And that is disturbing on a yeah. Truman Show level. I thought that these kind of shitty little sidewalks that I'd memorized every crack in and every little bench that I'd sat on when I waited for my mom to pick me up at school would be replaced, but they are still the same bike racks. Oh, yeah. And the same curbs. Nothing has changed. My point is more one of mortality is that for the first time I've had to really swallow that all this stuff will outlast me. At Carver Elementary, the red benches that there that I ground up with my skateboard, they didn't replace those. It's all the same. It's been 23 years since I lived here. That means that bench is going to be here after I die. On the one hand, being in New York, you are provided this constant illusion that activity is occurring at a very fast rate around right. you, so you must be getting something done. It tells your brain that you are accomplishing something when you may have just taken the subway from A to B and then got tired and went home. Coming home and having to see these artifacts that are actually just wooden, like a bench is just wooden. Oh, right. It's not yeah. even concrete. Yeah. It's, it's a malleable piece of shit. The rain hits it every day. How yeah. is that thing outlasting me? But I am old now. That was my first grade bench. Yeah. And so I, I'm just saying it forces me to swallow that. I really don't have that much time left, but that these shitty inanimate objects are more permanent than me. I think the small towns are what you make of them, and that's on you. Right. That's your responsibility. Right. If you have a problem with a small town, then you've got a problem. Right. Live your dream, or else you will live a nightmare. <laughs> the revelation is that I can't believe such stupid things are actually living a more profound life than me for many people. No one's going to remember at me at Carver Elementary. The teachers are gone. No. Yeah. I only went there for six years. Right. Yeah. That seems like a lifetime when you live here. But then once you come back, you're like, 
I am like this fallible thing that will just be washed away. Yeah, is that bad? Well, these are the moments in your life where your fantasy world melts away. You know, just like you said when you take acid. Yeah. The world will melt away. It does. You're presented with a more permanent truth. Yeah. Something that persists throughout the eons, you know, not just a fucking bench. You make art, music. I mean, when I was young, I thought I was going to argue a case before the Supreme Court, and it was going to be like Brown versus Board of Education, like people would refer to it from then on. But, I mean, Mozart's lasted more than 100 years. I mean, it is possible to outlive a bench. (laughs) You're empathizing with the quest to become more than mortal. More than mortal, yeah. Yeah. Which is an assumption that I made when I heard Tears for Fears in that apartment in 1984. Yeah. That little boy in that room thought, I can be like that. I will make the world in that image. I will make the world understand that I, too, have this ability. Uh. And when that idea gets put in your brain, you manifest it or else you spin off into hyper disappointment and depression yeah yeah. so so there's a seedling moment and i mean i think we're surrounded by a lot of people that don't have that moment right that don't have a seedling moment right they don't even have a vision for themselves some some ways that's the dna of of a small town i guess yeah you know it's like fucking mayberry there's a fireman and that two o'clock like the Truman show he comes out of his door and he waters his plants on Saturday it's yep. like robots yep I mean, this is what we would have talked about on acid 25 years ago oh, yeah there's really nothing you can do to escape the four walls of this life you know what I no. mean no no there's not and if you tell yourself there is you're either going to be smashed down by the humbling earthquake of truth at some point, or you're going to live in a fucking crazy fantasy world. Or, I mean, you're going to drink yourself to death because you realize this is not possible. Your your childhood dream will not be realized. Right. So it's like you sort of pick your poison. Yeah. So in college, when I went off, I had this guru that was a Taoist master, basically. And he would talk about white hat existentialism and black hat existentialism. And he would talk about how, obviously, you could take meaninglessness as a good thing or a bad thing. Right. And it's just so much easier to take as a bad thing. Each one of us is tied to ambitions that we want to come true desperately. It could have been the person you were in love with for a decade. Right. But something's going to cause you pain that is not going to come to fruition. And on that day will be the true judgment of how you see the world. You know, are you black hat or white hat or how do you view absurdity? Where do you think you fall on that spectrum? Do you think you're essentially a positive person in the end? I do. I get happiness and fulfillment from others, but I also get happiness and fulfillment from not caring about others. You know, 
walks in the woods with my dog on Sunday morning when the sun's coming up and a woodpecker flies by or a fox or something, things in my life, including loneliness, led me down the path that I'm on. But then, you know, I'm living at my house, which I like. So I'm 85% white hat. I have a little darkness. When you say you were scared and you were afraid to leave town and you yeah. were afraid to smoke pot and you were yeah. afraid to do all the stuff, yeah. you were afraid in ways to become a functioning member of, of society. Right, right. You know? I didn't want to grow up. Yeah. Somehow you, you found a way to see that sort of twisted path as delivering you into a place that you actually needed to go anyway. Yeah. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say, yeah. So the negativity in your life has sort of landed right side up. In right. And it's fueled yeah. you. Right, it's fueled me. I mean, some of my fears were so irrational. I know how I got where I am, and I like lots of it, you know? I'm optimistic. The greatest thing I've discovered in my life is I kind of like guruing. almost remembered everything. Yeah. You're pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. Wow. You haven't smoked as much pot as I have.